Good morning, Central Church. It's good to be with you. My name is Tom Gibbs. I'm the president of Covenant Theological Seminary. Perhaps more importantly, though, I'm close friends uh, with your pastors, uh, Dr. Clay Smith and Charles Godwin, been friends uh, since seminary. Our families have walked together in faith and partnership in Christ for many decades now, and I'm grateful uh, to get to bring God's Word to you. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. You can also find that passage printed, I think, in your worship guide. And prior to my time here in St. Louis, I served as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas. And being from San Antonio, the home of the historic Alamo, uh, you can forgive my children for having a certain amount of civic pride. They are proud to be from San Antonio. And you understand that. St. Louis has its own uh, markers of civic pride, uh, the gateway of the West, the arch. And, and we have the Cardinals, and you have the beautiful Forest Park, and so many other markers for which we can give thanks to God and the treasures that, that we celebrate in, in the cities in which we inhabit. And yet, as beautiful and as wonderful as all of these treasures are, the Bible tells us that, that we have no lasting city on this earth. Now, God tells us that right here in verse 14, in chapter 13, that these cities and their treasures are destined to fade away, that, that according to the Scriptures, that there is only one city that will endure, and that city is the city that is to come, that the city that's on the way, and it's that city that we're called to seek. Here in chapter 13, indeed, the whole of our life, let's begin reading in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same today and yesterday and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. 
For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. That grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before You recognizing the authority of Your Word, but also its inspiration. And pray that even that spirit which inspired these words would now come and be with us, making them alive and fresh in our hearts, on my lips, that we would be more and more conformed unto you, that we would be ready and able to believe all that you promise and do all that you command. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. How do we envision our end? How do we envision our end? In his poem, Trying Conclusions, the late poet, Howard Nemiroff, who for years was a professor here at WashU and twice over U.S. Poet Laureate, he wrote that poem considering the irrationality of life after death, belief in everlasting life. And yet, as that, as that poet pondered um, the concept of eternity. He he recognized what almost everybody believes, and even him to some degree recognized that that rationality gave gave way to some sort of irrationality in his own mind. He, He wrote, what rational being after 70 years when Scripture says he's running out of rope would want more of the only world he knows? No rational being. He while he endures, holds on to the inveterate infantile hope that the road ends, but as the runway does. The road ends, but as the runway. We, we take off, right? The, the skeptic Nemirov, if you read the poem, he can't possibly believe in God, the, the soul, any sort of transcendent truth. He knows such is irrational, but... but At the same time, as he ponders his own demise, uh, this idea, this notion of everlasting life, it wells up within him irresistibly and without explanation. Why fight it? Maybe there is more to life after death. And of course, we, we know that's true. Our conviction that our lives go on in Christ is rooted in his very life. He rose from the grave. He is risen indeed as the first fruits of those who will come after him as he lives. So will we also live. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know that our everlasting hope is not irrational, nor is it some vestigial sentiment that left over from our evolutionary path, past. Dr. David Calhoun, the late church historian from Covenant Seminary, he puts it, well, for the Christian, the words, the end of the road do not bring fear and uncertainty because we know that finally the path runs not into a tangled wilderness, but to the king's own palace in the celestial city. That's where the road ends, the king's palace in the celestial city. Did you you hear that? The, The road ends not as the runway, taking off into some vaporous, immaterial, indistinguishable thing, but in the celestial city, the city, a specific place, at a specific 
time that Dr. Calhoun is taking his cues from the book of Hebrews. It's the celestial city, that is, its origins and foundations that do not come from below, from us. God is the designer, as the writer tells us. He's the builder. This is the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one whose foundations are in peace, shalom. This is the city that we long for, and it is because God has made it the city that will endure. How can it ever pass away? And friends, this is so important for us to hear this, because contrary to the Greeks and the Romans, and maybe even some of us, eternity is not some disembodied bliss. Well, we get to go pursue our passions and private indulgences without recompense. No, the world that our God envisions that is to come is a future glorious renewal of His world, the world that He made, all of creation. And in that world, we will live out the fullness of our humanity and in worship to our triune God. And in that world, it will be free from the pollutants of sin and death and evil. In that world, we will live out the fullness of what it means to be a human being. In that world, Samwise's dream comes to reality. In that world, all that is sad becomes untrue. Friends, this is the glorious and promised end of the road for believers in Jesus Christ. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming for us. But for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's why the writer of Hebrews is urging the believers to remain steadfast in the hope of their confession. Hebrews 10, verse 23, recognizing that that promised coming is for, for them, and the one who has promised it is faithful. God's promised it. He's faithful. It's coming. What's interesting about that promise is it's not merely called to passive waiting. We see here in verse 14, if we're paying careful attention, we're not just called to wait for the city that is to come, but rather verse 14 calls us to seek it, an active seeking. Be seekers of the city that is to come. We're called to look for this city. As with so much in the Christian life, seeking the city that is to come is, is not a let go and let God sort of thing. It's a grab hold. It's a believe deeply. It's a get to work thing. And as we go through our passage this morning, we're going to see how the promise of the coming city of the Lord is also a promise that issues forth in our active pursuit of it, our active seeking of it, and we see how we're to do that. In chapter 13, as we give ourselves to godly Christian community, as we cultivate godly Christian conduct, and as we honor Christian authority in the leaders that he has set over us, three priorities that are at the core of what it means to seek the celestial city. And likely, if you're like me, you haven't thought deeply about that. So let's dig in to our passage this morning. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3. Let's consider the church community. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
You remember the Apostle Paul who wrote to the church at Corinth, faith, hope, and love are these great attributes, but the greatest of which is love. Because our faith will give way to sight, our hope will finally be realized in the fullness of the celestial city, but love will remain. Love endures. Because love is the currency of relationship that is forged in the bonds of grace and characterized by the love that we've received in and through Jesus Christ, that love is fundamental to all human relationships. That's God's intent. And when the writer says, let brotherly love continue, he's saying, let your relationships be characterized by that virtue which will characterize all relationships in eternity. That love which we will one day soak up and be saturated with and give one to another in fullness without sin, without the taint of our evil. But that, that love is to be now in the church, but both internally, but also externally as we show that love to the outside world. First, let brotherly love, this is the love inside the church, love between Christians, let it continue. How do we measure church health? You thought about that? How do we measure that? And of course, we can't be a healthy church without a true confession of the triune God. We must affirm the truths of the Scriptures. Our worship also must be true and filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, if we're to survey the Scriptures over and over, it seems that the primary measuring rod of the health of the church is the quality of the relationships of God's people, the quality of our love. John 13, verse 35, how will the watching world know whose we are? Only by the love that we share one to another. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their important book, Bold Love, they speak about the priority of love as the primary measuring rod of the health of a person, the health of the church. They say love is the measure by which my life as a Christian will be assessed. That measuring rod strips me of any self-importance. If I'm judged on how I love and not on how many books I sell, seminars I give, people I counsel, then at one level it doesn't matter if I do those things. It only matters if I love. And I wonder how many of us think that way about our lives. Does it, is that the priority? Wouldn't it be better to be judged on my performance at the office? My, my performance in my ministry, in the church, just spread it out. And yet over and over we see this call, this summons to love one another. I wonder how are you good folk here at Central Presbyterian doing in, in your love one to another? Are you, are you hustling? Are you hustling in your love to one another? Is that what Central Church is known for? And it's not just love for one another. Let brotherly love continue, but then it goes on. Ryan, we're called to show that love. Do not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers and aliens 
as demonstrations of the love and charity that we ourselves have received in Jesus Christ. That this reference to entertaining angels unaware is surely a reference back to Genesis where Abraham and Sarah encountered three angelic visitors and in so doing, showing them hospitality, they received a blessing. Indeed, a blessing of the promise that portended the the celestial city. Right, the promise that, that was coming, God had not given up on it. And as they showed hospitality, they became a partaker in that promise. And not only did they receive a blessing, but they were seeking that blessing in the context of the hospitality that they showed. I wonder if we think the same way about the hospitality we show to outsiders, those who are different, those who don't fit the mold, that they don't seem to be of our ilk. We don't quite get along with them. Have we recognized that the hospitality we show is one of the primary ways that we bear witness to the beauties that are to come in the celestial city, which will be the gathering of the the peoples of all the world, of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And when we make that extra chair at the table, and we make room for that outsider, we, we are saying that there's a better city coming, that there's a more beautiful city coming when we love our neighbor. L- love your neighbor, right? It's, it's not some bare command, but, but it is intimately bonded to the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ given to Abraham and all of God's people that the promise will extend and go forth to all the nations bound to Christ, bound in his blood as he's redeemed us. My former congregation in San Antonio, Texas was two blocks from another Presbyterian church that had very different theological convictions than we ourselves had. And and in spite of that, one day I read on their messaging sign outside uh, uh, something that I was quite pleased with. It said, love your neighbor, period. No exceptions, period. And I thought, you know, despite the distance of our theological understandings, the convictions that we have about God's moral vision for his people, I can 100% agree with what you've said. Love your neighbor, no exceptions. And I wonder, as God's people, do we think that our hospitality has an eschatological dimension? Like, like it, it is tied to something far bigger than we imagined. It's not just, I've been a good Christian today. No, we've borne witness to eternity. When we've shown hospitality to those who are in need, that, that's the point that's being made here. We're, we're testifying to the world that is to come. And this is why, friends, it's so tragic when we build walls and barriers, when we keep out the very ones that Christ has called us to reach, the very ones that Christ has called us to connect to. How can we prevent them from coming? Do not neglect to show hospitality. Let brotherly love continue, for in such a way we we bear witness to, we seek 
the celestial city. But, but we need to go on verses 4 through 6. The conversation shifts to the area of Christian conduct. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's shifting, right? He goes on, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Careful reader recognizes here we have three commandments of the Decalogue. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Sexual morality, greed, and contentment. That the Lord is with us. And so we have no need to give ourselves over to that which cannot save, that, that which will not satisfy. And that these three commandments are certainly emblematic of a bigger and broader moral vision, but probably these three were also, well, common temptations. But we would certainly say they're common today. Sexual immorality greed theft and contentment. We, we, we struggle with, with such things even today. And the writer say, saying the same thing about the love that we show. We're called to cultivate lives of Christian character because one day we will all have the same character, the character of Christ. But one day we, we will shed our immorality and our sin and our covetousness. How much better for us as those who've been saved by grace, therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer up ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, right? Give ourselves now unto Him fully, cultivate Christian conduct, that let's cultivate virtue in our lives. And let's start with sexuality. Wow, it was an issue in the first century too. And certainly it's an issue in our day as well. What counts for sexual faithfulness? Well, if you ask the progressives, it's kind of tolerant faithfulness. Among Christian uh, traditionalists, we would say that, well, we're upholding the biblical moral vision that God gave to Adam and Eve, the, the original biblical vision of sexuality, that sex is to be... Um, honored in the context of a covenanted union between a man and a woman, marriage. This is the proper theater for uh, sexuality. Who's, who's right? I'm guessing you already know the answer to that question. God's Word has spoken clearly to it, and yet we're confused, and we don't have time to dig into that issue this morning. Clay's thanking me right now. But I do want to take this opportunity to mention a conference that Covenant Seminary is going to host in November, November 3rd and 4th. We're bringing Dr. Carl Truman and one of your former pastors, Dr. Robbie Griggs, will be speaking on this topic, sexuality and the changing self. I want to invite you to attend that. But what I want us to say here clearly from chapter 13, part of the celestial city, seeking that city is to honor God's creational intent, God's original vision for sexuality, just because that vision is no longer popular in the public square doesn't mean that we can set it aside. But we testify to the beauty and dignity of human relationship as we uphold 
of biblical sexuality. What's interesting is he also calls us to be free from greed, free from the love of money. And when we turn to the topic of money, I find it ironic that Christians, we tend to be, at least conservative Christians, we tend to be conservative about the issue of sexuality. And then we can have an almost completely laissez-faire attitude towards money. We can say to the world, you know, God cares about your body, but He does not care about your pocketbook. God cares about what you do with your body, but He does not care about what you do with your bank account. And yet here, clearly, God speaks to both, right? There is the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment. God cares as much about both. Both are God's concern because both will testify to the celestial city, how we conduct our lives sexually and then how we conduct our lives economically and fiscally. Do not neglect to do good and share with what you have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The reason why we're to be free from the love of money it's not so we can check off the box and say, yeah, I, I've been a good steward. I've tithed. No, no, it's because our resources are tied to God's vision of abundance and generosity towards attending to those who are in need. We're not to be free from the, we're to be free from the love of money that, that we might share and give to those who are in need. Even that uh, socially progressive reformer, you, you know the one I'm talking about from the 16th century, John Calvin. <laughs> he recognized this. He said, no one should say, I'm not hurting anyone by the manner of, and he talked about his dress and the different things that, that people can indulge their hearts and lives on, laying up treasures in heaven. No, no these, are, these are consequential actions. But greed is not a victimless sin. Be free, the writer calls us, from the love of money, recognizing that the Lord is the Lord of our wealth. And then finally, be content. Be content with what you have. The Tenth Commandment, reminding us that morality is not simply a check-the-box external function of our behavior, right? It's an orientation of the heart. It's how if we oriented ourselves to all that God has made, it's about our motivations. Our calling is to be content with God's provision and the sufficiency of, of His providence. I will never leave you and forsake you. Okay, wherever you are, I'm with you. I'm in all of those circumstances. I am your helper. You don't have to fear. What, what can man do to you? It's like he's been reading the psalmist, 73, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, O Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Make your list. What do you want? All those things you're hoping for in heaven? Pile them up. 
and none of them outweigh. Even the, all of the good ones, they don't outweigh the, the beauty and wonder and the satisfaction that you have in the Lord and all of the beauties and all of the wonders and all of the things, all of the feels that you could have in this world now. And they don't compare to our satisfaction, what God aims for us to have in Him. Be content. And we become a billboard for the celestial city. As we cultivate Christian virtue, we testify to a better and more beautiful world that is to come. And then we come to verses 7 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders. Submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. When I first read these verses, I thought it strange that they're here in chapter 13, almost disconnected and, and disparate. How is this connected to bearing witness to the celestial city? How is this part of seeking the, the city that is to come? And yet, as I thought about it and pondered it, those relationships became more apparent, quite apparent to me, because why am I seeking a celestial city? Why are any of us? Why do any of us have any interest in the things of Christ? Why would we even care to listen to this sermon if it were not for some Christian leader who bore witness to some person who either shared the faith of Christ with us or became the conduit to someone else sharing the faith of Christ with us. Friends, we are interested and aware and hoping for the celestial city because of the witness of the church through which we have received by the Christian leaders that God has put in our path. How can we not honor them? How can we not respect them? How can we not celebrate and give thanks to God for them? From them, we heard the words of life. Honor them. We owe our Christian lives to them. And then, well, follow them. Imitate them. Consider their way of life. Imitate their faith which is a challenging thing in this day and age, recognizing that, that Christian leaders have perhaps more often and frequently disappointed the flock than led the flock. We've seen far too many Christian leaders fall. We know that they are just as prone to temptation and sin as any of the rest of us. And yet at the same time, the summons that we would follow Christian leaders is as applicable today as it has been throughout church history because how am I going to live this Christian thing out? How am I going to do it? And by how, I mean very practically. How do I live out being a Christian? We have to have someone teach us, right? Not just teach us, but model it. Show me how to do a Bible study. Show me how to pray. 
I have to listen to someone pray before I can pray. I have to watch somebody open the Word of God before I can begin to open the Word of God. I have to have someone take me down to serve my neighbor before I will begin to serve my neighbor. We need models in the Christian life if we are to be model Christians. Just like our children. Right? Our children don't need a book, they need a parent. Books are good. Parents are essential. Right? Parents model what it means to be a person. And we need models in the Christian life. And where else are we going to go except to our leaders? As flawed and as broken and as imperfect as they are, we still all need godly leaders to show us what it means to live out the Christian faith. And for that reason, the exhortation is not just imitate their faith, consider their way of life. At sometimes they're going to say things that not just disappoint you, but you flat out disagree with, and you will have to say, I need to obey them. Even when, when I don't want to. Now, I'm not suggesting we obey them when they clearly contradict the Scriptures, and that does happen. But this is, this is the exhortation because they're carrying more water than you. The job of your Christian leaders is not just that they would get to the celestial city. Their job is to make sure you will. Their, their job is to make sure that you will make it to the celestial city. And that's why the writer reminds us they will have to give an account. So, so there it is. Now we see why seeking the celestial city is tied to the leadership and the life of the church because our leaders are, well, leading the way, helping us get there. The, the conduct of our lives is how we're going to live for all eternity, Christian love and charity. Let, let's go back, though, for a moment to Nemirov's poem, Trying Conclusions. Do you know that poem? It's two parts. The first part, Nemirov caricatures what he believes is traditional, typical Christian piety. And, and he talks about how, you know, Christians, they're just out there praising and thanking and beseeching God in agony, giving themselves this unceasing prayer. And if there is a kind of eternity, it will probably be God making those people born again so, so that they keep doing that empty uh, spirituality, that, that vain spirituality. And of course, as you read that part of the poem, you, you understand him if you are a Christian, that, that he gets it wrong. He's caricaturing the Christian life. But we don't seek the celestial city by being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No. Not to be sure, we, we are called to worship and pray and seek the Lord. But to the contrary of his poem, armed with God's grace and his powerful presence, we seek the celestial city precisely through the conduct of our lives in this world with these people, in these spaces, that the quality of our love, the love we show one to another, the love that we show to the outsider, the character of our conduct and the 
contentment of our hearts and even the beauty of church relationships and leadership in the life of the church. It's like this giant billboard saying, come with us. When the world looks at the church, what do they say? Two things, typically. Either they feel fear and condemnation when they look at the church because they feel radically judged and alienated by all of us, or they feel pity and shame for us because they think we're just completely deluded and out of our minds. Usually one of the other, judged or deluded. They either have pity or they feel judged by us. But one thing they don't believe is that we offer a compelling moral vision that would summon them to faith and trust in Jesus. And one way to see what it means to seek the celestial city is that we would become that kind of community. We would become a beautiful community by the quality of our relationships, the conduct of our lives, and the way in which authority is exercised in the life of the church. Friends, that's how we become city seekers. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word, even when it challenges us and says things to us which we quibble and and even resist. We pray that you would overcome such resistance by your grace. And make us to be those who are alive in Christ, filled with hope and faith and love. That we might obey you and follow you. And that you would make your church that place that bears witness to the beautiful community that is coming. That that glorious heavenly Jerusalem, the city that is to come. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.